This morning we're back in our uh, series in Corinthians, and so if you turn over in your Bibles to 1 Corinthians chapter 15, we're going to be looking at, uh, we continue to look at this topic, the reality of Christ's resurrection and the implications that it has. And today we're going to be looking at the results of his resurrection. Uh, the first Sunday we looked at this, we looked at the prominence of the resurrection. Second Sunday we looked at the proofs of the resurrection, all the eyewitnesses that were there in the first part of 1 Corinthians 15. And then uh, last week we talked about the hope of the believer's resurrection in verses 12 to 19. And this morning we're going to be looking at the results of his resurrection. What are the implications by what Christ said that he was going to rise from the dead and that he did? Um, I was reading this past week, um, a little article, and it had last words of some people right before they died, like literally right before they died. Their words were recorded. And some of these people I knew and some of them I didn't. But it's interesting that sometimes people always want to get the last word in. You ever notice that like in a conversation? I mean, especially if you're into politics, you're, oh boy, this is bad, right? It's just not a good road to go down with people. But... You know, some of them were very touching and tender. Some of them were kind of humorous, actually. Uh, some were angry and uh, kind of tired, you can tell. And uh, so a couple of these I just want to share with you as we today. Um, Edmund Gwynn, anybody know who Edmund Gwynn is? Oh, wow, you do. I had no idea. Um, he played Santa Claus in Miracle on 34th Street, was asked by someone close to him, If dying was tough, and he said, yes, it's tough, but not as tough as doing comedy. (laughs) I thought, that's an interesting take. Okay. Uh, Karl Marx was on the edge of death, and his housekeeper asked him if he had any last words. And he said, go on, get out. Last words are for fools who haven't said enough. Boy, those were his last words. Can you imagine when he woke up on the other side? <laughs> Would not want to be him. General John Sedgwick, a Union commander, was told that the enemy was stationed not too far away. And he dismissed the report and he said, they couldn't hit an elephant at this dis." And right then, a bullet pierced his heart. And he died. <laughs> A bullet prevented him from saying his last sentence. A lady, Nancy Astor, awoke briefly in her final stages of terminal illness. And when she saw that she was surrounded by family and friends, she said, Am I dying? Or is it my birthday? (laughs) And those were her last words. Joan Crawford, the actress, the one who played that Mommy Dearest character, Uh, lay on her deathbed, and her her maid, who was caring for her, began to pray for her, and she stopped her, and she said, don't you dare ask God to help me. Wow. It's amazing. People always have to get the last word in. Aren't you glad, beloved, that God has had the last word, and he continues to have the last word uh, concerning all these things that we're studying about the resurrection, whether you believe it or not? Um, John MacArthur in his commentary quotes a theologian named Eric Sauer. And he says, this present age is Easter time. It begins with the resurrection of the Redeemer, and it ends with the resurrection of the redeemed. Between lies the spiritual resurrection of those called into life through Christ. So we live between two Easter's. And in the power of the first Easter... We can go to meet the last Easter. Pretty amazing. And so when we think of resurrections, just in way of introduction, I want to look at the classification of resurrections. There's a a couple different classifications of resurrections in the Bible, and I think they're listed there in your outline. First of all, we have the resurrection of the redeemed. That's kind of what Paul is talking about here in our context in 1 Corinthians 15. He's talking to a church who believed that Christ rose from the dead, but they were having issues applying that to their own belief that one day they would rise from the dead. They didn't get the connection. And so even though they trusted that Christ rose from the dead, and some of them trusted him even as their Savior, they had a hard time comprehending that one day they 
would physically rise from the dead. And part of that was because of their pagan background and and they didn't believe that that was possible and whatnot. But that's the resurrection of of the the, the Redeemer and that's what what Paul kind of talks about here in 1 Corinthians 15. But then we see the second one here is the resurrection of the unrighteous. The resurrection of the unrighteous. In, In John chapter 5 verse 29... Uh, John writes this, Do not marvel at this, for an hour is coming when all those who are in the tombs will hear his voice and come out. Those who have, listen, done good to the resurrection of life and those who have done evil to the resurrection of judgment. See, it's important to understand that even though you don't know Christ, one day you will be risen from the dead. And you will, your body will be uh, judged. Your soul will be judged. And so it's, it's good to understand that you know, we not only have the resurrection of the Redeemer, but we also have the resurrection of the unrighteous. You don't get a pass. You're still going to be resurrected. And then the third resurrection is the resurrection of the righteous. And I think I misspoke and said that first, but um, 1 Corinthians addresses that too. And this is what Paul was trying to do. He was trying to convince the, the Corinthians that, hey, if Christ rose from the dead, you will rise from the dead as well. As a matter of fact, in Revelation chapter 20, verse 6, listen to what it says. It says, blessed and holy is the one who shares in the first resurrection. Over such, the second death has no power. What's the second death? The first death is when you die. second death is what? Your spiritual death. Um, but they will be priests of God and of Christ, it says, and they will reign with him for a thousand years. So Revelation 20 speaks of the resurrection of the righteous. First Thessalonians chapter 4, the apostle Paul gives rather a lengthy part here. We're just going to read part of it, but verse 13 of 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, he says, But we do not want you to be uninformed or ignorant, brothers, about those who are asleep. In the Bible, when it talks about sleeping, a lot of times it talks about someone dying. It says they fell asleep. Well, they they died physically. That you may not grieve as others do who have no hope. Now remember, who's he speaking to? He's speaking to the church of Thessalonica. They were believers in Christ. They believed that Christ rose from the dead. They even believed that that they will rise from the dead, but they needed some kind of encouragement with this. And Paul says in verse 14, For since we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so, through Jesus, God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep or those who have died. For we declare to you by a word of the Lord that we who are alive, who are left until the coming of the Lord, will not precede those who have fallen asleep. So what is that? This is speaking of the rapture. When the Lord comes back for his church, those who are alive will not precede those who get resurrected from the grave. And then in Luke chapter 14, our Lord is giving a parable. He's giving a parable of this great banquet. And he says in verse 13, But when you give a feast, invite the poor, the crippled, the lame, and the blind. And you will be blessed, verse 14 says, because they cannot repay you. And then he says this, for you will be repaid at the resurrection of the just. Speaking of the resurrection of those who have trusted Christ, who have been saved. And so the apostle here reminds the Corinthians that they've already believed in Jesus Christ's resurrection. That wasn't an issue. They, they, they proved that at the very opening verses of the book. And so logically, they must also believe in their own resurrection and all of the saints' resurrection. And that's where they kind of stumbled up a little bit. Um, one commentator basically lists nine things. If Christ had not risen from the dead, these would be the negative effects of that. If, if Christ had not come out of the tomb. First of all, he says there'd be no resurrection at all, right? If Christ hadn't raised, there wouldn't be any resurrection. Secondly, our preaching is in vain, and we looked at some of these last week. Thirdly, your faith is in vain. Fourthly, we're all false witnesses because we're witnessing about 
Christ's resurrection. And if there is no resurrection, then Christ hadn't raised. Not even Christ had been raised. Um, Sixthly, your faith is worthless. Seventh, you are still in your sins. Eighth, those who have died before you have have no hope at all. And the ninth thing he says is we are of all men most to be pitied if Christ hadn't risen from the grave. Praise God he has. Praise God that we know that to be true, right? Um, We know it by fact, by reading the word of God, but we also know it by experience. Christ has made a difference in our life. And so we want to continue here in the text speaking of the results of the resurrection. So I would ask you to stand in honor of God's word. I'm just going to read verses 20 to 28, and then we'll get into our message. 1 Corinthians chapter 15, beginning in verse 20. But in fact, Paul says, Christ has been raised from the dead, the firstfruits of those who have fallen asleep. For as by a man came death, by a man has come also the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive. But each one in his own order. Christ the firstfruits, then at his coming, those who, are, who belong to Christ. But th- then comes the end, when he delivers the kingdom to God the Father, after destroying every rule, every authority and power. Verse 25, for he must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. The last enemy to be destroyed is death. For God has put all things in subjection under his feet. But when it says all things are put in subjection, it is plain that he is accepted who put all things in subjection under him. When all things are subjected to him, then the Son himself will also be subjected to him who put all things in subjection under him that God may be all in all. Father, we ask you to bless your word this morning as we look at just the first couple of verses here and uh, help us to see your truth and apply it to our lives. We thank you in Jesus' precious name. All God's people said, amen. Amen. You may be seated. So the first thing I want us to see here under the results, we've looked at the, the classification of these different resurrections, but now we want to look at the certainty of our resurrection, that our resurrection is... A sure thing. That it's something that we don't have to quibble about. We don't have to wonder about. And that's what Paul says in verse 20. Look at what he says. But in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead. Um, It's kind of like he's saying, hey, just because I told you all this stuff about, about Christ and all the evidence and everything, and even though if you still question this, I want you not to have any uh, misunderstanding here. I'm not questioning quite Christ's resurrection because he says, in fact, he has been raised from the dead. He says, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. See, Paul was one who saw the risen Christ. Um, Christ made a special trip back to see him on the road to Damascus. We know the story well. He was on his way to persecute more Christians. And the Lord appeared to him and said, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And he says, well, who are you? I am the Lord. And he was blinded several days. And, but that was Paul's, Saul's transformation. That's when he became Paul, the apostle. He saw the risen Lord. And so he had no doubt in his mind that Christ had risen from the dead. No doubt at all. But then it says, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. And this is going to take a little explanation. So I need you to kind of put your thinking caps on with me this morning as we walk through this. Turn back to Leviticus. Leviticus chapter 23. All the way in the Old Testament. Exodus, Leviticus, chapter 23. He says, in fact, Christ is risen from the dead. 
And then he says he's the first fruits or first fruit. What does that mean? I mean, what a change. I mean, that, that word there, a but, in Scripture always denotes a change. Something happened. Something is different. It's a tremendous uh, contrast. The truth that he came back from the dead. And it says that Christ is risen from the dead and he, he became the, the first fruits of them that slept. This is interesting. Now, in Leviticus chapter 23, look at verse, uh, verse 9. Leviticus chapter 23, beginning in verse 9. And you have to understand here, the first fruits is one of the, the seven major festivals in Judaism. They had Jewish festivals that would, they would have them in, in order to worship the Lord. It's kind of a special day. Uh, they're, they're called a holy convocation or a Shabbat. You hear the, the Jewish people refer to the Shabbat. And they're treated like the Sabbath. They're very special days to those who are Jewish. And uh, they'll take a day off. They, they treat it just like the Sabbath day. They don't do any work. These are very special days. And, and they're designated days in Judaism for a day to worship God. That's what the purpose is. And they all are a, a cycle of festivals. And what the, 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 why they had these was God's ultimate goal was these festivals would point to the coming Messiah. They would point the heart of the Jew to the coming Messiah. That's the reason God gave them these different festivals. They didn't get that, unfortunately. Um, but we don't even have to guess about this because the New Testament kind of connects the dots for us. You know, in the New Testament, remember we have, uh, we, we celebrate what? Passover. Okay, they, they, they celebrated Passover or Pesca as they, they call it. In 1 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 7, it says, For Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. And so... This was just another festival, like Passover. It was called the Festival of First Fruits. And it was always on a Sunday, on Sabbath. On Sunday, um, the Sabbath was their Saturday. But it was always celebrated on a Sunday, which would be the first day of the week. It was always celebrated on Sunday after the week in which the Passover occurred. It didn't matter when the Passover occurred. If the Passover occurred on Tuesday, they would have the, 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 the Festival of First Fruits on Sunday. If the Passover occurred on Friday, they would have the Festival of First Fruits on Sunday. It always happened on the first day of the week, Sunday. We call Sunday the Sabbath, but really in Judaism, the Sabbath is what? It's Saturday. All right? And so we know here from our, our passage in, Le, in Leviticus chapter 23, verse 9, that Jesus Christ, our Lord, is identified as being the first fruits. So let's look at this passage together. In verse 9 it says, And the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Speak to the people of Israel and say to them, When you come into the land that I give you and reap its harvest, you shall bring the sheaf of the first fruits of your harvest to the priest. And he shall wave the sheaf before the Lord, so that you may be accepted. And then it says, on the day after the Sabbath, the priest shall wave it. So this didn't happen on the Sabbath. It always happened on the first day of the week, the day after their Sabbath, which was Saturday. So it happened on Sunday. Verse 12, and on the day when you wave the sheaf, you shall offer a male lamb a year old without blemish, as a burnt offering to the Lord. Now, I want to remind you that Jesus is what? The Lamb of God. All right, we see some connection here. The Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. Verse 13, And the grain offering with it shall be two-tenths of an ephah of fine flour mixed with oil, a food offering to the Lord with a pleasing aroma. And the drink offering with it shall be of wine, a fourth of a hen, just the way they measured it. And you shall eat, verse 14, neither bread nor grain, parched or fresh until this day, until you have brought the offering of your God. 
And it is a statute, the Word of God says, forever throughout your generations and all your dwellings. Because it says forever there, there's some people even within the church, they recognize that maybe the church should celebrate (laughs) this festival. Um, But there's a sense in time, every time we worship the Lord on a Sunday morning, we are celebrating, we may not even understand it completely because we don't have, uh, many of us are not from a Jewish background, but um, we're celebrating the festival of first fruits. We're celebrating what? The resurrection of Jesus Christ. He is the first fruits. Uh, David Hawking, when he was asked by his neighbors, why do you go to church every Sunday? I mean, aren't you Jewish? He always answered it in the same way. He'd always say, well, the reason I go to church on Sunday is to celebrate the Jewish festivals. And they'd say, what? What are you talking about? And he said, oh, yeah. And he'd go on and he'd explain. No, there's a Jewish festival of festivals, and that is to be celebrated on Sunday. You have the Jewish festival of first fruits and Passovers, okay? All those. And so the festival of first fruits celebrates really the resurrection. The other one that happens on Sunday, Shavuot, they call it, uh, which happens the, the morning after the Sabbath as well. Uh, you count even sa- uh, seven Sabbaths after the first fruits, and the day after on Sunday is known as Shavuot. And the Jews have now changed that, and they, they date it from the Passover rather than what the Bible says. But that being the case, the fact is is that in the Bible, there are two Jewish festivals that always happen on a Sunday. One is first fruits. The other we know as past, uh, Passover. Okay? And, and so first fruits, we, 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 would, we would call it Pentecost. All right? And you have to understand the history here. Because um, the name Pentecost comes from the Greek word for what? For 50, right? But the Jewish name is Shavuot, meaning weeks or, or sevens. And on Pentecost is one of the few festivals that they actually have leaven in their bread. Usually they eat unleavened bread. But there they put the yeast in there, just regular loaves of bread. And if you've ever been to one of these ceremonies, there's two of these loaves of bread. And the the Jewish priest or rabbi, he will take the two pieces of of bread and he stands up there and he waves them like this. And everybody says, what's he waving the bread for? And if you ask them, guess what their answer is? We don't know. Tradition. Tradition, it's tradition. We've always waved the bread. It's just tradition. They don't know why they do it. You can go to the bookstore and buy the Jewish book, Why? That asks all these questions about Judaism. They say they don't know. Um, David Hawking says that the Lord's made it very clear that men shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God. He quotes that scripture. He also refers to that Christ said, I am the what? The bread of life. Some think that the reason the rabbi waves these two pieces of bread is to represent Jew and Gentile. They're being symbolized. And they're going to be brought together in one loaf from the day of Pentecost forward. And that's exactly what happened. Uh, most Christians, we don't get this because we, we don't have a whole experience in Judaism. But you have to remember, at the time, the sects of, of Judaism included the Pharisees. They included the, the Sadducees, who didn't believe in the resurrection. That's why they were sad, you see. Uh, they had the Zealots, okay, who were just very militaristic. And they had the, the Nazarenes. And the last group mentioned were actually Jewish believers who followed Christ. 
They followed Yeshua of Nazareth, people of the branch. They were Jewish believers and they were created by the power of God on that day, on Pentecost, when they came to Christ. And so when we come to church, we're really celebrating the birthday of the church, first of all. And then secondly, the resurrection of our Savior. That's why we come to church. It's not because I have to. It's not because mama told me to. Hopefully it's not because I got some food afterwards. Because I want to be here. Why? Because I want to celebrate the resurrection of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. I want to celebrate the birthday of the church. By the way, I also like to come out on church on Wednesday nights. Some ladies come out on Thursdays to pray. It's, it's, it's great to be part of a fellowship where you have access to other believers. I mean, why do you enjoy going to church? I pray that because you're a member of the family of God. If you're a member of a family, you desire being together with that family. Now, some of you may sit there and you don't know my family. But, you know, for the most part, most people enjoy being with their family. Why? Because that's where we're most comfortable. <clears throat> that's where we're able to relax and, and grow and fellowship. Today we have the total wrong idea about the church. You know, it's all about what we get. We come to church, what are we going to get out of it? What are they going to give us today? Hopefully it's something encouraging to get me <clears throat> through, the, through the next week. But here it says that Christ is our first fruits. And I, I mentioned that Pentecost, we have the first product from the wheat harvest. And any farmer knows that you couldn't have a wheat harvest at first fruits because first fruits is celebrated in early spring at the time of Passover. We need to understand this. First fruits is the first of the what? The barley harvest. And the barley harvest ends when the wheat harvest begins. And so on Shavuot, which today they celebrate the giving of the, the law of Moses, but, but celebrates the end of the barley harvest in their tradition and the beginning of the wheat harvest. And you say, well, what's, what's that? Who cares? Well, it says Christ here as the first fruits of the barley harvest indicates that there also will be a wheat harvest as well. It will follow. I mean, the incredible truth here is that there's going to be a gigantic resurrection of believers. The definition of first fruits is fundamental. When we say here that Christ is the first fruit, it's the sign of what's coming in the harvest. It's just a small picture of what it is. It's interesting that in my translation at least it is first fruits it's plural it's written out as plural but in the original language it's not. It's singular. It's the first fruit. It's not referring to many people. A lot of Bible teachers try to say that. That's not what it's referring to at all. It's referring to one person. Who is the one person? Our Messiah, the Lord Jesus Christ. He and he alone is the first fruit. And it means not first as far as order, but, but the first of its kind. The first resurrection of its kind. Well, how is Christ's resurrection different? Are you saying that nobody else was ever resurrected before Christ? No, but the resurrection of Christ is what? It's permanent. It's a permanent resurrection. Do you ever think about that? When Jesus Christ rose from the, the grave, he never is going to die again, ever. Totally like the resurrection of Lazarus. He was re resurrected by the Lord himself, right? But guess what? He died. Totally unlike the daughter of, of Jairus or the widow's son, whom all Jesus rose from the dead, right? But guess what? They all died again. They died 
again after they had died once. This resurrection is first of its kind. It's, it's a resurrection where you never die again. He is the first fruit. And guess what? We are the harvest who put our faith in him. The words there and become found in some translations do not really, um, are not there. They're kind of misleading, unfortunately. In some texts it has that. Christ did not become the first fruits at the, at the time of his resurrection. But at the moment of his resurrection, by the very fact of his resurrection, his being raised made him the first fruit of all who would be raised. So what Paul is telling the Corinthians is if Christ hadn't risen from the dead, there's no hope for anybody to ever be raised in this fashion permanently from the grave. Now before the Israelites harvested their crops, they were to bring a representative sample of the crop called the first fruits. And they would bring it to the priests as an offering to the Lord. We saw that in Leviticus 23.10. And the full harvest could not be made until the first fruits were offered first to the priest. And see, this is why Paul is using this figure of speech here. This is why he's using this, this point. Christ's own resurrection was the first fruit of the resurrection harvest of the believing dead. Without his resurrection, there would be no harvest. In his death and resurrection, Christ made an offering of himself to the Father on our behalf. And that's the significance of this Christ being the first fruit. Not only was that they predicted the harvest, but that they were the first installment of the harvest. It was a sure thing. The fact that Christ was the first fruit indicates that something else, namely the harvest of the rest of the crop, is to follow. It kind of makes sense. I mean, if you're growing a field of corn and you go out and you, you can't even come up with an offering for the first fruits, then guess what? You're probably not going to have a very good harvest, right? There's nothing there. But if you can go out and you can bring the first fruits back to the priest, then you, you realize, wow, this harvest is coming. It's just a matter of time. What is Paul telling the Corinthians? He's saying, in other words, Christ's resurrection cannot be in isolation from ours. It's impossible to believe that, well, no, we believe Jesus rose from the dead, but I don't believe I will be risen from the dead. It's impossible, Paul is pointing out. Because if you have an offering of first fruits, you're going to have the harvest. His resurrection requires our resurrection. It mandates it. Because his resurrection was part of the larger resurrection of God's redeemed. And so the resurrection of which Paul speaks of here is this permanent resurrection. And we read throughout scripture people who have been resurrected but they died. This one we will not die from. That's what it means by the Christ is our first fruits. But continue on here in verse 21 and 22, it's, we see this dilemma that we have. The human, the human race has this dilemma. It says, for as by a man came death, by a man has come also the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die. So we have this human dilemma He's telling the Corinthians that, you know what? In Adam, all die. Adam was the first man. It says, by man came death. And the Greek here has a definite article in front of Adam, the Adam. The Bible refers to a particular man, namely the first one. Adam, the person is the first, is called the first Adam. 
We'll see this a little later on. Jesus Christ is called what? The last Adam. But he is not the last man to be born on earth, clearly. So what does it mean? So he is the first in some sense, but he's also the last in some sense. In the first case, it is the issue of death. In the first man, death passed to all men. That's what Romans chapter 5, verse 12 says. We know that verse, therefore, just as sin came into the world through what? Through one man. And death through sin. So death spread to all men because all have sinned. This is very fundamental, but it's very important that we understand this. Some people read that verse, well, that's not fair. That doesn't sound right because Adam messed up, now I'm messed up. It doesn't seem just. I mean, you may argue with it all you want. Too bad. It's true. How do I know that? Because everybody dies. Everybody dies. We're all going to die one day. The fact is, pending the Lord's return. The fact is, we all die. That's what this says. Because of one man, this death spread to all men because all sinned. Therefore, all are going to die. The Bible says the soul that sins, what? It must die. It must die. The whole question of, you know, is popular, why do people die? And the human answer is simply, well, you know, the human body, it, it, it can't sustain itself that long, and science will one day come up with an answer that will allow us to live forever. Wrong. Not going to happen. Why? Because that would prove God to be a liar. We're not able to live forever. Why? Because the scripture says that we've all sinned, therefore we all die. We all die because of sin. What's it do? It produces that corruption of the body. We'll study this later when we get a little later uh, down in the chapter 15. But here, just understand, in Adam all die. Maybe you don't like that truth. Well, frankly, I don't like it either. It's irrelevant what we like. But the important thing to remember is, don't forget that in Christ, what's it say? We shall all be made alive. So in Adam, we're all going to die. But in Christ, those who put their faith or trust in Christ will be made alive. I like that. We didn't deserve the first one. We don't deserve the second one. But guess what? This isn't based on what we deserve. It's based on God's grace. It's based on what God wants to do. The truth of the matter is because Adam sinned and sin entered into the world, death is passed on to the entire human race. Everybody will one day taste of death. Doing a funeral for a family next week, next Wednesday, and went over on Friday to meet with the family and was discussing the arrangements. And yesterday I was down here studying and got a call and I answered the call. And it was the widow of the, woman, of the man who passed away. And she says, I don't know what to say, Pastor. Um, my husband had a brother, and they were 16 months apart. And we just found out this morning he passed away. He didn't wake up. I'm like, wow. This family is encountering a lot of death in a very short amount of time. Everybody has an appointment with death. People who are not, uh, people, I should say, are not born in neutral. We're not born innocent. The Bible says that we're sinners from the very moment of conception. King David said this much in Psalm 51, verse 1. He says, Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin did my mother conceive me. 
According to the Bible, sin is not in the, the physical body, it's in the soul. Which is, by the way, a good argument for our protection and crying out for the unborn child to be considered a real person. See, the Bible says that you're a sinner, I'm a sinner. The fact is, you sin because you are a sinner. This is what the Bible says. You don't become a sinner because you sin. The fact is, you sin because you're a sinner. You're already a sinner. And that's what sinners do, they sin. And in Adam, the Bible says we all die. And sin is passed through the whole human race. Paul even calls us children of wrath. If you look over at Ephesians chapter 2, verses 1 to 10, this kind of explains the whole, the whole thing. He says in verse 2 of Ephesians, and some of you, verse 1, he says, some, and you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked. He's talking to Christians. You were dead. It's a condition, spiritual condition. You were dead to God. Following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience. Verse 3. Among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the, the mind. If you're a Christian here that Today, don't, don't, please don't walk around feeling puffed up, feeling somehow spiritually entitled because you're, you're a righteous Christian. It's always good to remember where you came from. It says, among whom we all once lived in the passions of the flesh. The next time you talk to an unbeliever, don't have a smugness about you. Your heart should be breaking for their soul. Not worrying about what their behavior is. And then he says, and you were by nature, there's the phrase, what? By nature, you're children of wrath. Like the rest of mankind, Paul says. You're no different than anybody else. Remember I said the word but connotates a big change? Look at verse four. But God. Thank God for the butts of Scripture, man. But God, being rich in mercy. What is mercy? You have mercy and grace, right? Grace is, is God giving us something that we don't deserve. Mercy, on the other hand, is God withholding something that we do deserve. But God, being rich in mercy, what did we deserve? We, we were children of wrath. We deserved his judgment. But because he was rich in mercy, because of the great love, Paul says, which with he loved us, and the extent of his love, how far does it go? Look at verse 5. Even when we were dead in our trespasses. <clears throat> See, I think Christianity is one of the only world religions that does not teach you have to clean yourself up first. For God to accept you. You can't. You can't clean yourself up enough. I mean you could, you could take showers and baths. And scrub all you want. You could scrub the skin off your bones. You're not going to clean yourself up enough. To be presentable. Before a holy God. Because Jesus said. For that to happen, you would have to be what? Perfect, as my Father in heaven is perfect. Anybody here perfect? No takers. You'd be a total idiot to raise your hand. I'm perfect. All we have to do is follow you around for five minutes. We'd figure out real quick, you're not perfect. None of us are perfect. Why? Because we've all sinned. But God being rich in mercy because of his great love for which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, we had no life at all. A dead body can't do anything. A dead body can't get up and shake your hand. It can't make its decision. It can't do anything. Incapable of anything. That's when 
God made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you have been saved. Don't ever, ever forget that. Don't ever think you're going to get to heaven one day because of something you've done. It's only by God's grace. Verse 6, and he continues, and he says, And he raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. Notice it's past tense. It's done in God's mind. This is a completed action. It's not something that will happen. Because remember, our God transcends time. There's no yesterday and tomorrow and today. He sees everything at once. And so he says, you know what? You're already together with Christ. I raised you together with Christ. By grace, you have been saved. Now the practical Living that out is a, is a continuous process. We are being saved each and every day as God sanctifies us and, and molds us more into the image of his son. That's the practical aspect of our salvation. This is speaking of the positional aspect of our salvation. And guess what? If you don't have the positional right, you're going to have a real hard time with the practical application of your faith. If you don't understand who you are in Christ... If you don't understand that it was because of God's mercy that you came to him. It was because of his great love, which he already set on you before the foundation of the world. That he loved you even when you were dead in your trespasses in sin. That's when he made you alive in Christ. That's when he saved you by grace. That's when he raised you up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. Verse 7, so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace in kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. We are a picture of God's kindness. The word of God says it's, it's, it's the kindness of the Lord that draws us, grants us, brings us to repentance We're part of that kindness. When people look at our lives, they should see the kindness of God. Not some smug, righteous, judgmental person. Verse 8, for by grace you have been saved through faith. It's by grace, grace alone, in Christ alone, faith alone. You're not saved by coming here on a Sunday morning. This doesn't save you. Hopefully it feeds your soul. You're not saved by feeding homeless people or doing any other acts of kindness or mercy. You're saved by his grace. That's what makes our salvation such an incredible thing. You save me? Why? Why would you save me, God? And Paul dials down there in verse 8. He says, this is not your own doing. In other words, you had nothing to do with it, pal. You don't... You know, we, we, I think we think sometimes of election in this fashion. That God lines us all up on the playground, you know, line of the, the basketball court. And then he picks who's going to be on his team. And we, we relate it that way, and we think, well, yeah, I'm going to pick the best people. I'm going to pick the guy who's the tallest and the fastest. That's not how God makes his choice. As a matter of fact, he says he picks the smallest and the weakest to confound. The, the foolish, he says, I'll pick the foolish of this world to confound the wise his standard of, of picking who's on his team, we can't even relate to that. But he wants us to understand that it's not our doing, it's a gift of God. What is a gift? It's something that God brings to the table and says, here, this is yours. Well, wait a minute, what, what do I have to do for it? Nothing. Nothing? Nothing? Well, what is the gift? The gift is your forgiveness for your sin. 
I'm granting you forgiveness if you'll take this gift. What's the gift? The gift is the Lord Jesus Christ. The gift is the fact that Jesus died on a cross. And upon him was placed all of the sins of all those who would come to him for faith and salvation. And God treated him as if he had committed all those sins, even though he never committed one. He was perfect. That's what made him the perfect sacrifice. It's a gift of God, not a result of works. Some of you, I'm afraid, are trying to still work your way to heaven. You're still trying to do the right thing. You're still trying to make sure everybody thinks you're doing the right thing. And if you were to sit here this morning and honestly assess your own heart, you know there's something wrong. There's something not right. Pride is standing in the way. Why? Because you like to boast. I don't need a gift of God. I'm a pretty good person. Look at what I do. I give to the church. I come to church. I help. I do all this stuff. Kind to my neighbors. None of that is going to give you salvation. That no one may boast. He says, it's not a result of works that no one may boast. And then Paul says, for we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works. We come to Christ. And the other, the other, some people think, well, if it's all grace and it's all God, then I'm just going to sit back in my armchairs of grace and just kind of live my life. All my sins are forgiven. Who cares? No. Because God created us for good works. He prepared beforehand works that we should be doing. You know, if your boss said to you on Friday before you left, hey, Monday morning, I got a special project I want to work, I want you to work on for the company. And you say, well, what is it? I'll tell you Monday morning. Just be here Monday morning. Okay. You may be kind of excited. You may think, wow, he picked me out of everybody. And the Monday morning comes and you go, I'm kind of tired. I got to work. I think I'll just take the day off. Would you do that? I don't think so. I don't think so. See, when we come together as the body of Christ, we don't come to get, we come to give. We come to serve. We come to minister to one another. Hopefully in a transparent, authentic sense. And these are things that God prepared before him that we should walk in them. But if we're not showing up, then guess what? We're not going to be doing the works that God has prepared for us. The Bible says in Romans 3, none is righteous, no, not one. No one understands. No one seeks for God. All have turned aside. They together have become worthless. Zero, not a zip, nothing. No one does good, not even one. You can't get any clearer than that. The Bible teaches that we are in desperate need of a Savior. Amen? Why? Because we have no righteousness of our own, beloved. You can't save yourself. In Hebrews chapter 2, verse 15, 14 and 15, it says, Since therefore the children share in, in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook, partook of the same things, that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is the devil, verse 15, and deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to a lifelong slavery. And then it says in, in Hebrews nine twenty seven, and just as it is appointed unto men once to die, guess what happens then? The judgment. There's no soul sleep. You don't get to go to purgatory and somebody can eventually bail you out. No. You're standing, the moment you breathe your last, in a millisecond, you're, you're in the presence of God. Or not. <laughs> but notice it says, and just as is it appointed for man to die once. Guess what? We're all going to die on time. You can take all the supplements you want. You can... Do all the exercise you want. And this is our body that God has given us, so we should be a good steward of it. 
But at the same time, guess what? I've heard of a lot of people who are very healthy that, well, we couldn't believe it. You know, they just ran a marathon and now they're dead. And other people seem like they're very unhealthy and they live forever. Why? Because we can't make sense of it. It's, It's appointed unto man wants to die. God has appointed a time for us to die. That's the human dilemma. That's how tremendous it is. Well, back in 1 Corinthians, we not only see the definition here of the first fruit and the human dilemma, but quickly here, the divine deliverance. Verse 22 at the end, it says, So also in Christ shall all be made alive. Also here in the original language, there's a definite article in front of Christ, in front of Messiah, the word there. Um, So also in the Christ. Not any old Christ will do for this. It's the Christ. Only one Christ will do. The Lord Jesus Christ. And if you put your faith, your trust in him, it says then one day you will be made alive. Everybody, whether they're a Christian or not, are going to experience a resurrection one day. Everybody But I guess what, you know what, you you definitely want to be a believer. (laughs) You don't want to go through the resurrection experience as an unbeliever. Because the unbeliever's resurrection will cause them to stand before the great white throne judgment and hear the sentence of our Lord that whosoever was found written in the book of life was not found written in the book of life, excuse me, whoever's name was not found written in the book of life, the Lord says that they will be cast into the lake of fire. The Bible indicates that hell is a place where you'll be tormented day and night for all eternity. Not for a year, not for 10 years, not for 10,000 years, for eternity. You do not want to go there. You go there for One reason, because your name was not written in the Lamb's book of life. The the whole Lamb's book of life is, is talking about the resurrection. And at last, forever, we will be with the Lord. And we will rule and reign with him. All the dead will rise from the dead. Well, when would this happen? Verse 23, the glorious day. But each in his own order, it says. Christ the firstfruits. Then at his coming, those who belong to Christ. See, Paul is painting this picture for the Corinthians that, look, if you believe in Christ's resurrection, you will be resurrected too if you have faith in Christ. But by the way, even if you don't have faith in Christ, you're still going to be resurrected. Because there is a resurrection of the dead, of everyone. 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verse 16 says, For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a cry, of command with the voice of the archangel and with the sound of the trumpet of God. And it says the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive, who are left, will be caught up together with them in the clouds. This is known as the rapture. To meet the Lord in the air. It's not his second coming. He doesn't come to earth. It says we meet him in the clouds. And so we will always be with the Lord. And Paul concludes there in verse 18 he says therefore encourage one another with these words we should be looking forward to his coming at his coming it's the coming in the air it's a it's a secret coming in the sense that the world will not see it the world won't understand what happened with everyone when when the rapture happened they're not all going to go oh yeah we saw all the people floating up no they're not going to have any idea But seven years later, at the end of the tribulation, after the rapture, all the Old Testament believers are going to be resurrected as well. All of them. Isaac, Abraham, Jacob, Daniel, Joseph. Daniel chapter 12 relates this to us. They will be resurrected to everlasting life. Daniel 12.12 says, Blessed is he who waits and arrives at the 
1,335 days. We don't have time to go into all this, but just be sure to understand that 75 days after the Lord returns at the Battle of Armageddon, exactly 75 days after he will judge the nations, he will judge Israel, he will set up his kingdom. At that great moment, that's the day that all these Old Testament believers will come back from the dead. They'll be raised. By the way, that's why we don't eat the marriage supper of the Lamb in heaven. Because the Bible says that we go to sit down with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob at the meal. And guess what? They're not resurrected till the end of the tribulation. The marriage supper of the Lamb begins that millennial kingdom, which is likened unto a marriage that a man gave for his son in scriptures. Now also at the same moment, according to Revelation 20, all the people who have come to believe in the Messiah during the tribulation, during that seven-year period, there will be people who come to believe in Christ. They will be killed by the Antichrist and his forces for their faith. Well, guess what? They will be resurrected at the end along with the Old Testament believers as well. You say, well, why is that? Because the tribulation period is part of this prophecy of Daniel in chapter 9. Those who have been beheaded for the cause of Christ during the tribulation, it's going to be one of the most awful holocausts of terror the world has ever seen during that time, by the way. You do not want to go through the tribulation. I don't know what your end times theology is, but mine says, because I've trusted in Christ, I'll be out of here. But these dear people who put their faith and trust in Christ during the tribulation will meet their death. They'll be beheaded. They'll be beheaded. But you know what? Hope is beyond the grave. Amen? They will be resurrected as well. John chapter 5, verses 28 and 21. Do not marvel at this, for an hour is coming when all who are in the tombs will hear his voice and come out those who have done good to the resurrection of life and those who have done evil to the resurrection of judgment. There is a resurrection of believers and there's also a resurrection of unbelievers separated by at least a thousand years. And sometimes these things trouble people. They say, well, this is kind of technical. Do you really believe this? Yes. I believe this is going to happen just like the book says it's going to happen. After studying the Bible for 30-some years, the evidence is overwhelming, beloved. It's overwhelming just by what has already happened. The Bible is filled with fulfilled prophecy, one after the other. These men of God predicting things that weren't even in the existence the day they predicted them. They predicted things like names of nations and cities and times and how they would be destroyed and even how they've come into existence. They were predicting and projecting ahead of that which, in, in a human way, they, there's no way they would ever understand this. And yet the Bible says the word of the Lord came onto them, and they wrote it down. And this is the very word of God we hold in our hands. There's not one prophecy that's already been fulfilled that hasn't been proven beyond any question to be true. Nations, events, days, times, cities, placements of of the Bible's most, it's, it's, it's the history's most accurate recording of ancient history. C.S. Lewis said this in his screw tape letters. He says, if I were the devil... If I were the devil, I would do everything I can to undermine the authority of the Bible. Because Christianity rests on the facts of the Bible. The certainty of our resurrection is something that we can be assured of, beloved, because of 
Christ as the first fruit, the human dilemma, the divine deliverance, and looking forward to that glorious day when he returns. That's where our hope lies. It doesn't lie here on this earth. It doesn't lie in a government that's trying to figure things out. Our hope lies in Christ, in Christ alone. Amen? Father, we thank you for your word this morning. We pray, Lord, that you would help us to understand fully more as we look into this again next week. And Lord, I pray today that our ears would hear the gospel. That, Lord, we are in a terrible plight. We are in our sin. We are set apart from God. But, Lord, you have provided a way out of our dilemma. You provided a way through Christ. And when the human heart cries out to God and asks him to forgive them of their sins and put their faith, their trust in Christ, in Christ alone, that he will save that individual. He will transfer the righteousness of Christ to them. And and then they will be righteous before God. That will be their position, even though it's not their practice. Even though they continue to sin here on this earth, practically, each and every day. We have the grace of God and the promise of Christ's forgiveness for all of our sins, past, present, future. And that should motivate us to live a life of holiness, a life of purity, a life that's dedicated, solely dedicated to doing what you want us to do. We shouldn't have our own agenda here on this earth. We're, we're here but for a vapor, here and gone And Lord, the idea that you have prepared certain things for us to do, certain good works for us to do, if we're not doing them, we're wasting time. Time is of the essence. If you're here this morning and you've yet to put your faith, your trust in Christ, I pray this morning that you would cry out to God, Lord, be merciful to me, a sinner. I understand I'm I'm a sinner. It doesn't take much nowadays to convince people that they're a sinner. If you've ever told a lie, if you've ever used God's name in vain, you're a sinner. You need the grace of Christ. You need the gift of salvation. You cry out to him. You ask him to save you. He will. He's done it for many in this room already. And Lord, we thank you for the message of the gospel that we can take it from these four walls out to a lost and dying world and share it with a deep conviction and passion in our hearts, knowing that it will change people. It has the power to do just that. And so, Father, we thank you for our time this morning. We pray that you bless our time of fellowship across the way. And we ask these things in Jesus' precious name. Amen. We're going to close uh, with that uh, right now, so you're dismissed. And uh, pray join us over in the fellowship hall. Um, and uh, we have some food over there. And we'll continue our fellowship over there. All right? God bless you. Have a great day.